Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 13th, and you're very welcome to this special edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This podcast was recorded yesterday evening in front of a live audience at the very salubrious Institute for International and European Affairs Young Professionals Network on North Great George's Street in Dublin. And in fact, if you listen carefully at one point, you can hear the street cleaning truck going past in the background because it was so warm in there that we had the windows open. Joining me were Ruan McCormick, who is our assistant editor and lead writer with the newspaper with a particular focus on foreign affairs and also Lucinda Creighton, the CEO of Vulcan Consulting and former Minister of State for European Affairs and also of course our political editor Pat Leahy. Given where we are Pat uh, and given events over the last two weeks or so, um, I suppose we can't avoid talking about Brexit and its confusions but I wanted to read you a quote first of all. It came from uh, the, uh, the former director of the FBI, James Comey, whose Twitter feed is very interesting at the moment. And he quoted uh, Edmund Burke uh, the other day, and the quote is, applause is the spur of noble minds, but the end and aim of weak ones. I'm not sure who James Comey was writing about there, but I wonder, is that a thought that Leo Varadkar should bear in mind at the moment? Yeah, I'm sure it's in his advent calendar of Burke quotes that, uh, that he opens uh, every morning. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think what you're uh, I think I think what you're getting at is the government's performance in the Brexit negotiations thus far, and the negotiations in particular uh, last week. And I think it can certainly. I think you can certainly say that Leo was looking for a bit of applause, perhaps too much applause on the Monday uh, when the government, um, I think, probably preempted the uh, preempted the conclusions between Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker, and in doing so, didn't create the problem for Theresa May that led to the DUP momentarily. Uh, putting putting the kibosh on the negotiations, but certainly created can they helped create conditions where that was more likely to happen. Um, and I've spoken to officials who are involved in the negotiations, and their carefully expressed view is that certainly the Taoiseach and the Minister for Foreign Affairs have an acute political lens on uh, on on what is happening. Um, at, at the same time, I'm. I'm, I'm inclined to give them a broad degree of latitude on that. Um, I think that you can't take you know, politicians out of politics. And of course, Leo and Simon Coveney will be looking for the best possible political presentation of whatever happens uh, in, uh, in Brussels. I think where it would become a problem is were they seeking short-term <coughs> political wins at the expense of a, a more solid, longer-term strategy. I think perhaps the events of last week maybe raised a red flag 
uh, about that. Um, How so? But I don't think they constitute evidence. The red, the red flag being the red flag being that they were prepared. They were prepared to go out on Morning Ireland and the news at one to declare a great national victory before the uh, the national victory was actually uh, was actually attained. But um, uh, 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 as I say, I, I you know I don't think. Um, I, you know, I don't think we can be too po-faced about that uh, at this stage. I think their strategy thus far has been uh, pretty effective and, uh, and pretty successful. I think it will get to the stage now where things are an awful lot more difficult and an awful lot more complex, but thus far I'd be prepared to give them a, a B plus, and if you're inclined to applaud them for that, then off we Then they'll, they'll take the applause. Yeah. Lucinda, you're, you're well acquainted with, with the Taoiseach. Um, if we were to look at all this through the lens of the British Tory press, the Sun, for example, or indeed Ian Paisley Jr., uh, that this brash neophyte who's ended up by accident in government buildings and uh, is lumbering around the place, you know, undoing, you know, years of good work in Anglo-Irish and North-South relationships. Has he perhaps learned a couple of things over the last week or so, particularly the, the incidents which Pat refers to on the, on the Monday, which of course came after, you know, him almost um, pushing us into a general election only seven days earlier? Well, I think, um, you know, I think that there's a certain element of the pot calling the kettle black, you know, when, when the, the DUP start accusing um, um, the Irish Prime Minister. Uh, we're not allowed to call him that, actually. There was a backlash to that last week. Taoiseach. Um, uh, you know, somehow that he's, he's sort of inexperienced, that he's putting his foot in it. I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't think that really stands up. Um, he, he's obviously a very skillful politician. He's somebody who has had a meteoric rise in, through his political career. Uh, he's, he's, he, he has good judgment. Um, and rather uniquely, frankly, um, in the political system, not just in Ireland, but, but, but universally, as far as I can see, you know, he's very thoughtful, very intelligent, and actually you know, thinks deeply about the decisions he makes. That doesn't mean he gets it right all the time. You know, what politician does... Um, but, when you say um, uniquely, do you mean uniquely in Irish politics? Or? I think, well, as I look around the globe at the moment um, and look to modern, modern liberal democracies, I, I see it as being a pretty fundamental problem in most of them, frankly, so I don't think it's unique to Ireland. Um, so, so no, um, that's not to say that, that the Irish government or that, um, that Leo Astishuk will always get it right. Of course he won't, and there'll always be there'll always be judgment calls, and you're not going to get them all right. Uh, and, you know, politics, to a large extent... Um, is about luck and is often just about being in the right place at the right time. Um, now you can create luck at times, but 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 that is a part of it. Um, you know, I do think that the the government got a little bit uh, excited and probably um, uh, jumped the gun a little bit last uh, last Monday um, in sort of uh, you know preparing to announce a deal that that. Not that it wasn't agreed. I mean, it was agreed between mm. the EU negotiators and, and the British ne- negotiators, but, but understanding that Theresa May really does lack authority um, and is, a, is you know, an extraordinarily, probably in an unprecedented fashion, weak prime minister uh, with a divided cabinet. So you know, the idea that you could sort of take her or indeed her officials uh, at their word and at face value without sort of scratching a little bit beneath the surface, I think, was probably a little bit of a... I don't think it was a fundamental error, but I think it was a, it was a bit of an error. Um, uh, and, and thankfully, uh, as it panned out later in the week, um, you know, we, we, got, we got the deal. The deal um, 
was was achieved and that's really all that matters and you know the deal is open to interpretation and and you know as David Davis very unhelpfully pointed out over the weekend it isn't legally enforceable it's not a treaty it's a political agreement like every other set of council conclusions and I've seen a lot of them you know remember the seismic change in 2012 where retrospective bank recapitalization was supposed to happen etc etc it never happened you know so these things can be glossed over but the, but the only thing that matters at the moment is that there's a political agreement which allows things to move forward and means that we are not back in January or February trying to hammer out some sort of a wording, a wording that will always have to try to satisfy the British government, the DUP, the EU, uh, and, and most crucially, the, the Irish government. And no deal, no, re no really meaningful deal can satisfy all of those parties at this point in time because the positions are so completely contradictory. So it's an extraordinarily well-crafted fudge which allows us to proceed. And I think that's as good as it gets. And I think the Irish government has done a very good job in achieving it. I suppose, Ruan, in, in relation to that, there's been quite a lot of uh, kerfuffle going on in Brussels today about David Davis, and he's been rowing back a little bit uh, under, under, under pressure because of that. But it does raise the question, we're, we're three or four days beyond that deal now, you know, how successful beyond symbolism the deal was and how important the role uh, of Irish politicians and indeed Irish civil servants was in achieving well, it was successful in the sense that it achieved the immediate objective, which was to move the talks into the next stage, and it did that, as Lucinda says, by um, producing this exemplary piece of fudge, which gives everybody uh, what they want, which allows both sides, or all three sides, Dublin, DUP, and London, to present it as a victory of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, so it achieves the aim, but of course, all it does long term is push the can down the road and make the big decisions until late 2018, early 2019. I think in a in a way, not least because it worked out okay in the end, um, the stumble last week was a pretty good thing for the government in the sense that it taught people like Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, who are new in the job, that sort of lesson, it showed them as if they needed reminding that Theresa May is really weak, that she doesn't necessarily have control over her own side, her side including the DUP. But it also, I think, injected a note of realism for the first time into public perceptions of the government's approach, which have been universally uh, positive. Um, you know, even when they do reasonably competent or acceptably competent things, like come up with a modest enough contingency plan in advance of the referendum, they're showered with praise because the British have done little by way or nothing by way of contingency planning. I mean, it's the sort of basic um, piece of work you would expect of any organisation. Just get your homework done. Exactly. Mm. Um, but because the British had done nothing, Ireland was showered with praise for having done this great contingency planning. Uh, similarly, I think, while the deal last week, to answer your question, is an achievement for Dublin, um, we have to remember that the cost of those commitments, the cost of that solidarity from the EU27 was pretty minimal. You know, so a success in negotiating anything <coughs> is when you can convince the other side to do something that has some cost for it, or that comes with some sort of pain. There wasn't really much pain for the EU27 in agreeing to uh, play hardball on the, on the border. It will become much more difficult to maintain that position when you start talking, talking about trade, where the, the individual uh, interests of the EU27 states are, are in play and not necessarily in alignment either. So you'll have a couple of countries like Denmark, the, the Netherlands, Ireland, who have a real stake because of the volume of their trade with the UK in giving the UK a good deal and ensuring they have the closest possible trading relationship with the EU. You'll have countries in Southern Europe that trade comparatively little with the UK 
who aren't as interested in that and are much more interested in the EU budget and the 18 billion euro that's going to be lost to that from the UK's departure. So I think when the EU27's interests start to diverge, then you'll see how good the Irish government is. And this isn't to take away from the general competence of the Irish approach. I mean, I'm not arguing that. Um, I'm just saying that it will become much more difficult to maintain that EU solidarity as we move along. Maybe, Lucinda, you could just give us an insight into that, because that idea of now there's a new set of interests coming into play as, mm. as we move into the, into the next phase. And, you know, Rowan mentioned some of the countries who, who do have an interest in as soft a Brexit as possible, maintaining as good trading relationships as possible. But that probably includes Germany and to some extent France as well, doesn't it? Um, it does. I mean, I, I, I suppose we, we probably need to analyse what exactly the next phase is really all about. Um, you know, it's not a free trade uh, negotiation, uh, which a lot of people seem to think it is, particularly in the UK government. Um, that, uh, if we get to that stage, won't happen until, you know, after the 29th of March 2019. Really, it's a negotiation about a transition deal. Um, that's it. Um, and some sort of vague statements about parameters for a future trade ar arrangement but it's really about a transition deal and um, and as I see it I think it's going to be a very imbalanced negotiation as we've seen already you know we've seen the UK capitulate on rights of EU citizens on the EU budget on the jurisdiction of the ECJ on the Irish border question on regulatory alignment that they're just ones I can think of off the top of my head so pretty much all the red lines have already been crossed now that's not to say they won't raise their heads again you know that's the unpredictability and volatility of this process um, but really the question I think from an Irish national interest point of view and just in terms of the, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of the negotiation it's really going to be about a transition deal um, can the the horrendous reality of a transition deal be be stomached by the UK administration and what that, is that horrendous reality? Well that, that, that I mean it, it's so it's so palpably illogical you know it would merit a, a second referendum except that's not going to happen so effectively what it is 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 continu continuity it's the status quo it's accepting all of the things I've just mentioned um, for a period of whatever we'll say two years because that's what has been identified by trees by trees and mates except without having any say on them while, well. while, 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 you know, while, while literally leaving the EU institutions day one. So leaving the European Parliament, leaving the European Commission, never again will there be an EU trade commissioner. Yet we're talking about future, future UK trade arrangements now basically being aligned to the customs union. That's one solution that has been posited. There are others. Um, so, so continuing with the status quo, but, but having absolutely no say in the development of EU policy and regulation and the implementation of same um, forever. Um, and in my opinion, if, if a free trade, if, if a transition agreement can be negotiated, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain that it can, but, but if it is agreed, um, the likelihood is that that will be extended beyond two years because a free trade agreement or whatever trading relationship will be negotiated will most likely take a lot longer than two years. So Simon Coveney has said five years. I think that's not unrealistic. And at some point in that period, you have to think that somebody in the UK will say, this is completely barmy, this makes no sense, and will try to set, you know, develop some sort of a political movement that will try to, try to change the course of... of um, UK politics. So Pat, when Leo Varadkar flies to Downing Street in 
2021 to meet the new UK Premier Sadiq Khan to celebrate the uh, centenary of the independence of, 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 of Ireland. Will they be discussing a way to back out of this entirely? I see Janan Gadesh in the, the Financial Times this week um, singing the praises of procrastination as a, as a political policy. Uh, I, I think that's, that's possible. I think it's very difficult to look 12 months down the line in terms of British politics, not to mind look, um, uh, you know, look down the line to 2021. Uh, I mean, I have a difficulty in this idea that has been widely peddled on, on you know, Friday and Saturday, that this was a win for everyone, and, and particularly there was a great victory for Theresa May. I mean, as Lucinda points out, um, the, the, the victory for Theresa May was secured by conceding on every single major point uh, that, uh, that the British had brought in. I think it was Gideon Rachman was, um, uh, was, was tweeting on Friday morning that if this was victory, he'd hate to see what defeat looked like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think the achievement, her achievement, such as it was, was to gain domestic acceptance for it. From all the Brexiteers. From all the Brexiteers. But I think, uh, you know, while, while she is weak, as Luc Lucinda says, but paradoxically, she's in kind of a strong position because they have to keep her there to get to the, uh, the 2019 date. I think the Brexiteer strategy is to get to 2019, to keep things going up in 2019, and once they're out, they're out. And um, whereas the danger for them is that the government falls between now and then, and you're in a whole <coughs> politically new situation in, uh, uh, in the British with the possibility of, um, of a Labour government. And at that point, uh, I think Brexit itself becomes, uh, becomes doubtful. I, so, I, I think I asked you this question in the podcast before, and you looked at me as if I'd suggested something absolutely dreadful. But is it not in the interest of the Irish government, then, to hasten the day in which Theresa May goes to Yeah, control? this is, this is uh, after your promptings, I raise it with a number, uh, uh, as I often do, um, I raise it I with, a number, with a number of people. Uh, yeah. And in a way, it's the, it's the thought that dare not speak its think, in a way, uh, around government buildings. But certainly, yeah, people do thought they think about it, what if? Now, they've all been so conditioned to think, you know, that a Corbyn government would be economically so disastrous for, uh, uh, for Ireland, and also that, you know, Corbyn himself, very best, was a lukewarm uh, Remainer but in, you know, in a, the referendum. A high-tax, anti-trade um, UK in the European Union might not be a bad solution for Ireland as a bastion of inward investment for the US and champion of you know, the free market. No, I, even I think almost <laughs> every UK in the EU is better from Ireland. I, I, I think I even saw a suggestion that the DUP would actually do quite well out of arch-provo supporter Jeremy Corbyn being president because he'd probably you know, achieve the objectives which they ultimately want in the end as well. No, should we really have gone through the looking glass at this stage? <laughs> <laughs> um, they would never say such a thing. Let me turn this around completely then, Rowan, and let me ask you this. Are we obsessing, and have we obsessed, and do we continue to obsess too much about, to be honest, the very dramatic and somewhat entertaining uh, shenanigans at Westminster, and we're maybe taking our eye off the ball, looking, we should be looking more beyond the UK? I think that's a fair point. Um, I mean, some days we will have eight, nine, ten stories on Brexit in a day across home, foreign, business, op-ed. You open any French newspaper, any German newspaper, you'll be lucky to find one. You know, so we're talking about Brexit a lot, we're fixated on it for understandable domestic reasons. 
and the rest of the Euro rest of Europe generally is kind of cultural um, reasons as well. Like we have our eye sure. on the London ball in a way yeah. we don't have yeah. on Berlin. Of course, yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's understandable. But the point is that mainland European capitals, certainly France and Germany, are not fixated on this in the way that we are. Um, they're focused much more on the new dynamic between um, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. In Germany, they're understandably more focused on their own formation, government formation talks. But they're also focused in both capitals, I think, on what the EU is going to look like after the UK has left. And so it's not going to be just the EU 28 minus one of its members. It's the idea is it's going to be a new entity. Now, there are contrasting views, wildly contrasting views on what that new entity will look like. But the point is that a debate is taking place. Um, and I suppose you often hear from foreign diplomats based in Dublin, or at least you did earlier on this year, about how Ireland isn't really engaged in this debate, that because Ireland is so focused on the, the divorce and the terms of the divorce agreement, they're not really engaged in this debate. I think that's started to change. Simon Coveney gave a big speech in um, UCD last month where he talked about the Europe we want. They launched some sort of a public consultation exercise to get people's views. Um, Leo Varadkar in Paris talked about uh, some of Macron's ideas that he set out at the Sorbonne a couple of months ago. Um, but, you know, this is very new, and there is a danger that Ireland is left behind or doesn't succeed in showing, demonstrating that it is as interested in what comes after as it is in the divorce itself. And is, so, there, is there also, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the, the reason Ireland has a problem here is that Ireland doesn't like a lot of the ideas that Emmanuel Macron has set oh, out. Indeed. It yeah. doesn't like the idea of having a single um, merged president of the Commission and the Council. It doesn't like the idea of a Eurozone Parliament. It doesn't like the idea of um, you know, greater Eurozone political convergence. And, we were all, and we've always been used to have the Brits on our side. Exactly. And so we've always, had, we've always been able to hide behind London on these things, mm. as we have on things like uh, trade, on financial services and so on. Um, and we don't have that. And, and we also don't want to annoy people too much because we're counting on people's uh, goodwill and support and solidarity while we're talking about the border. So I can see the Dublin's at a bind of these things. But I think this is something that like the Irish diplomats in Europe, both in, in, in Brussels and, and elsewhere, are acutely conscious of. And it's getting, a it's, it's getting a particular focus at the moment with the suggestions on uh, for a dig digital change in the way digital revenues of companies are taxed at a European level. There'll be proposals from the Commission next year uh, on that, so uh, the, the, like it's the same guys on the Irish side who are talking to <coughs> the same guys on the French or the German side, or the, talking to commission officials on Brexit issues, and now they they will also be talking to them on these uh, on on taxation issues, and I think you know that it will alter the balance of those negotiations without question, not just because the British are gone, but because there is this perception that Ireland has had a very big victory and the uh, EU 26 have stood behind so it's payback time. solidarity and the payback time on things like tax. And I wonder, was that part of the reason why the, uh, the PESCO thing was pushed through at a fairly brisk pace. The, the defence arrangement. The job. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, I, I, to be honest, I, I just I wouldn't get overly uh, hung up on it. Um, I mean, what we know so far is that M Emmanuel Macron made uh, kind of an interesting speech 
about a lot of things that the European Union needs to do, at least 50% of which the EU already has competence to do or already does. So there were a lot of flaws in that speech. Um, and, um, and on the other things that he has floated, which, um, uh, you know, around um, sort of political convergence and um, sort of underpinning the, the monetary union in particular, well, some of them Ireland has, has at least at times in the last six or seven years pu publicly advocated for. So we've publicly advocated for debt mutualization, for example, and for some for banking union, for closer uh, political and institutional cooperation in different ways, not for a Eurozone finance minister, the kind of the headline grabbing stuff, but for a lot of the substance, we have actually advocated for it. Um, now, I don't know whether those positions hold, um, but, but, but certainly some of those were positions under Michael Noonan when he was finance minister. So. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that Emmanuel Macron has had multiple meetings with uh, Chancellor Merkel on a lot of these issues and has been you know, told basically, that sounds very nice, Emmanuel, now go home because it's not going to happen. <laughs> and it's certainly not going to happen with, um, with the political instability that exists in Germany at the moment, if you can call, call it political instability, because there's never really political instability in Germany. Um, but um, you know, so not lately. No, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, in in, 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 in recent decades, in recent decades. Um, so you know, uh, I mean, the the French have have obviously raised the tax issue in different guises at different times over the last fifteen years or so, and at, at every stage they've basically been rebuffed. Um, you know, there's definitely a desire to uh, to encourage and to be nice to Emmanuel Macron because he's not Marine Le Pen, and that's a big achievement um, uh, as far as you know EU officials and and other other prime ministers in pretty much every every member state um, uh, would would see it. Um, but you know, the European Union is not uh, it's not a it's not a structure that is capable of or designed for dramatic and sudden change. It just doesn't happen. It's incremental. It has always been incremental and it will continue to be. And yes, there probably will be some uh, further moves around, um, around um, political uh, cooperation in some areas, certainly in the security, um, security and defence side, which arguably is necessary and why shouldn't we play our role in it? Um, and, uh, and in other areas, if, if ever it happens, it's probably decades away. So I just think that we can, we can obsess on a speech that was delivered by Emmanuel Macron in the Sor Sorbonne, or we can actually look at where the, where the debate really is and where the political change is going to happen. And there will be political change without the UK. Some of it will be much, much less headline grabbing, much, uh, much more down to the minutia of how working groups in Brussels work. And I mean, this is the kind of stuff that would be fascinating to the audience which we have here today, but has tended never to grab the attention of the broader population in Ireland, or probably in most European countries, has it? No, but I wouldn't underestimate how actually how engaged we are. I mean, you know, I, I mean, as a as a as a former politician, you know, there were plenty of times when I cursed all of these EU referenda because you know they're a bit of a pain to have to run and get involved in and campaign in. But they've actually been very good for engagement in this country, and I actually think that Irish people are very well tuned into um, the European process, much more so than other member states. Really, I think it's reflected in the fact that we have um, consistently in Eurobarometer polling and other polling, including polling commissioned by the Irish Times, I think we are, you know, a massively pro-European uh, country. We are mm -hmm. the most pro-European EU member state. 
Um, and uh, and I think that is in large part due to the fact that our that our public are educated about the benefits of uh, the European project, about what we have received and gotten out of it. And I don't just mean subsidies and transfers. I mean you know in terms of our own economic independence and political independence, um, which has been you know has been sort of. Um, Strengthened um, through our our participation in the European project. Um, Is there anything to be said for another referendum? <laughs> There's nothing gets me going like a referendum. Um, I I don't think that we're likely to have have constitutional or treaty change um, anytime soon because there's no appetite for it. Again, it go, goes back to Macron. Like there is no appetite for it. So everything that's going to happen around um, reform within the European institutions is going to happen. Um, under the current framework of EU treaties. I'm sure of that for the foreseeable future. There is no appetite for it. And so it will be slow and incremental and it won't require treaty change or a referendum right. in Ireland. So, so no, no, horse, no horse is frightened. Is that your kind of oh, yeah, prediction as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the deeper <coughs> question behind all of this is where does Ireland, even if you strip away all the political debates that will take place in the EU, where does Ireland situate itself as regards yeah. that sort of structure of alliances um, that underpins every big EU negotiation. And what happens when you lose your closest ally that you've sort of hidden behind on lots of these big questions over the last 20, 40 years? I remember um, the Irish diplomatic corps was brought back to Dublin not long after the uh, Brexit referendum. They had this private session, some of the stuff leaked out, and they had this session with uh, Herman van Rompuy, the former head of the European Council. And the question they asked of him was, what should Ireland do now as regards alliance building in the EU, should we try to align ourselves with one of the three or four blocks that exist in, in, the, uh, in the European Union? Um, so, you know, you're talking about the Franco-German axis, you're talking about the, um, the Visegrad group, the sort of Scandinavian countries, those sort of loose, loose alliances. Mm. And his advice was, no, you're, you need to pick and choose your alliances depending on the issues, mm. but it's going to be much more fluid than it's been so far. And you can see sort of a tentative move in that direction in Leo Varadkar's and then the Kennys um, uh, opening up to uh, Denmark and, and the Netherlands, those trilateral they, summits. They, they attended before the, before the last summit, they attended, or uh, Varadkar attended the Nordic group uh, summit and presumably had to look pleased eating the pickled herring or whatever it is. They which which, happen, which happen to be the countries that are most exposed yeah. to... The, I mean, there's a real there's a real attempt to do outreach on those. Pascal Donoghue went to the Nordic finance finance ministers meeting before the. Before Does that mean a lot more bandwidth is required by the yes. Irish, you know, political and yeah. and civil service classes? Yeah. Yeah. More resources, yeah. more people. We haven't. We've never really. Where would we find young people who knew about Europe who were interested? <laughs> I have no idea. We have to go out in the street, probably. Yeah. yeah. But you know, we we've never really adapted to the to the enlarged European Union. I mean, Ireland, um, you know, sort of rather than embracing the EU of twenty seven or you know twenty eight as it is now, um, kind of retreated, I think, a little bit, and particularly because of the financial crisis, it just it became very very difficult for a small country. And so our strategy ended up being really about sort of going to Berlin on a very regular basis, practically setting up camp. Um, and um, and sort of pleading for mercy, as opposed to, you know, actually being confident on the European stage and actually seeing ourselves as brokers, as you know, wheeler dealers, as people who can build alliances on different issues. And I would totally agree with Herman van Rompuy. And by the way, he's one of the smartest 
European uh, political operators I've ever come across. I mean, he was phenomenal during the financial crisis. There probably wouldn't be a euro were it not for his very understated way of navigating through the most difficult and complex and politically charged European summits. He was extraordinary. He's really, and he had to, well, he had plenty of training in Belgian politics, which is, uh, you know, quite a, quite a, quite a quagmire. Um, but he, but so he's absolutely right. I mean, the idea that we try and pretend we're Nordic, I think, is a bit like it's a little bit manufactured. No, well, um, they are our, our most immediate likely allies. On, on not necessarily. So, so, so yeah, on some things. Though. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, and, of course, yeah. but not, but not necessarily on everything. So, no, for example, our, 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 the the cap, um, the sort of outline for for future cap reform was launched last week by Phil Hogan. Um, and of course, you know the, the Nordics are not our friends on that particular dossier. Neither are the neither are the British. Never have been. Um, it's it's the French. Um, while we completely will you know we'll bang heads on the tax issue, we will completely align with them on most things when it comes to to the cap reform, which will which will really kick off now in 2018. Um, on tax, the Baltic states and the Nordic states. And little Cyprus and Malta and you know and and Luxembourg in some instances and and the Netherlands, um, on the digital single market, it's very much Estonia, Lithu- Lithuania, Latvia, and and some of the Nordic. So it just depends on the issue. And I think for a small country like us, we need to firstly not just be friends with people when when we need something. Um, we need to try to cultivate those relationships all the time. And yes, that means bandwidth. It means investing in our embassies. It means our ministers being, get, you know, getting off their backsides and actually going and spending time in these countries. And a lot of the new European members, the, the new EU member states, you know, we spent a lot of time and effort back in the in the late 90s and early 2000s, helping them prepare for accession funding, sending our civil service over on exchanges to train them, show them how to draw down down EU structural funds, how to work through the common agricultural policy, because we were good at it. When the financial crisis hit, we we dried up all of that. We stopped all of those exchanges um, and we stopped funding them. And I I remember uh, colleagues from Slovakia saying to me, you know, we and and from the Visegrad countries and from other Central Eastern European countries saying, you know, we remember when the Irish used to do things for us, but we don't see you anymore. We don't see your ministers in our capitals. And so we really need to reignite that sort of energy in our engagement with other member states and, and not just do it when we have a problem, but do it as a strategy you know, with a very clear purpose and very clear aims. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests, Lucinda Creighton, Ruin McCormick and Pat Leahy. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your preferred podcast provider. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And please do take a moment, if you can, to recommend or to share the podcast. Also, we do really value your feedback and suggestions. You can mail them directly to me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can easily find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.